Welcome to the Future Law Podcast, the show that looks at where the law has been and where it's going. I'm Mike Madison. I'm a law professor in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with 35 years in the legal sector. We've been talking this season about ALSPs, or Alternative Legal Services Providers. Consider the possibility that a traditional law firm itself could turn itself into an ALSP, wholly or partly. What does that sort of change involve? In this episode, Dan chats with Isabel Parker about the issues law firms face nowadays and what can be done to address them. She is the former Chief Legal Innovation Officer at Freshfields in London, 2020 winner of the European Women in Legal Tech Professional Services category, and author of the recent book, Successful Digital Transformation in Law Firms. Take a listen. I'm Dan Hunter, and I'm joined today by Isabel Parker, who has a range of experience in the future of law types of things, and we're thrilled to have her here today. Welcome, Isabel. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So you have a lot of interesting observations around the topics that we're intrigued about in this season. So we're focusing on, you know, what are the the structural changes to the profession? What are the things that we need to do? You spend a lot of time over seven years as Chief Legal Innovation Officer at Freshfields here in London. And I know you've been doing a range of other things as well, including a book that we'll come to a little bit later. What, from your experience in all of the different places that you've been in, law firms need to do? aren't doing, can do? What are the the sorts of issues that that you've seen in this sort of space? Great, a big and a good question. So my particular area of interest is the relationship between organisational structure, culture and change or transformation. So I do believe the way we organise ourselves influences the outcomes we can achieve and and the amount of change we can drive through an organisation. And having worked for a long time in a traditional law firm partnership, The lens through which I look at that primarily is the traditional law firm partnership structure. Maybe a good way to to describe what I'm talking about is to indulge me for a minute in in a metaphor, an extended metaphor. So if you were designing your dream house from scratch, a piece of paper, you would want to create something that both supports your current way of working and living and your aspirations for the future, the way you want to live, you know, as you change and grow. So if you've got a young family, you want the house to sort of you know, be equipped to support that family as it grows and it changes. Or if you're retiring in your new home, you might want, you know, all flat surfaces or no doors or whatever that might be. And with houses, so it is with organisations, you need to be able to have an organisation that that supports the way that you currently work, but also helps to future-proof the organisation as, as, you know, as times change, as, as markets evolve and clients' needs evolve. And the issue for law firm partnerships in particular, and for those driving change through law firm partnerships, is that you've moved into a house that you didn't design yourself. So you've inherited this rickety old house from an elderly relative. It's like dark and pokey and the shutters don't work. And, you know, and you're faced with a choice. What do you do as a change maker in that environment? Do you redecorate it around the edges? Do you learn to live with it? Or do you sort of smash it down and start again from scratch? And that's a kind of choice that change makers are faced with but of course the law firm partnership has been doing very well for quite some time now and any suggestion that you've got to sort of break that open get the wrecking ball and smash it down I think isn't a very sensible suggestion it won't be adopted by partners it's not going to change anytime soon so change makers who are interested in the future of law need to think about ways to drive change that respect the sort of underlying fabric of the building but still modernize it that was a long long metaphor, but you see what I'm getting at here, I think. 
Oh, absolutely do. Um, so my sort of comeback would be most change makers within law firms are pretty much slapping a new coat of paint on maybe um, and not doing not doing any sort of structural renovations, not even not even thinking about sticking, you know, just an extension on the back. Uh, so some are actually, there's some, some interesting firms that have got some interesting extensions on the back, but, but no one's really sort of interested in, the, in, in structural change from where I'm sitting. Is that, is that fair to say? And is it necessary to do that sort of structural change? I think it is fair to say, and I think your observation is correct. And the reason not many law firms in particular are making fundamental structural changes to their operating model is because it's very, very difficult to do. If you envisage the law firm partnership model as, as a pyramid, as we often do, this solid, dependable, ancient structure, it's very predictable. You all know what you're going to get. They all follow the same structure. So partners at the top, and the council, senior associates, associates, trainees, and then right below, far, far below your business teams and the people who are actually driving change to the organization. And of course, Sadly, it is the case that often those business teams that are tasked with changing the way these law firms operate are not afforded the same respect, professional respect, as the fee-earning lawyers because the billable hour rules in a law firm context and the measure of success is revenue generation through billable hours. So it's very difficult, in fact, for non-lawyers or allied professionals, as I would much prefer to call them, to drive that level of change. And there are other other reasons why, why it's difficult, that the elements of a traditional law firm partnership structure that we all know and, you know, don't really love. And I should preface this by saying there are lots of good things about partnerships, and we can come on to those in a minute. You know, the rigid hierarchy, which we've talked about in the pyramid structure, consensus-based decision-making. So all the partners have to agree before a change can be pushed through. And of course, that's a very slow process. It's not very sort of agile. Short-term investment horizons. So they don't get to external investment usually law firms, they don't hold capital reserves, they distribute their profits out. So the kind of investment you would need, long-term investment to really drive change is very unpalatable and unusual in that context. There's a focus on revenue and PPP and hours, these sort of inputs, not the outputs, that drives a certain kind of set of behaviours, busy work, if you like. And then there's a sort of cultural piece. And law firms sort of pride themselves on having a strong culture which is often sort of characterised by, this sounds unfair, but I think it is true, by perfectionism and an intolerance of failure. And all those those elements together sort of militate against making change an easy thing to do. So it's hard, (laughs) in summary. It's very, very hard to do. We'll get onto your book in a minute where you talk a little bit about how you can actually make these sorts of changes within within firms. But I had one observation. I was chatting with Nick West from Mishkondorea the other day, who's, who's brilliant and great, and I hope we were able to have him on at some point. And I made, you know, the, the similar points that, that you've made, the sort of the difficulties of, of uh, transformation or at least transformational change within law firms, given all of those sorts of structural issues. And he said that he'd, he'd worked in a publicly listed uh, corporation, which I think was, was Relex, LexisNexis, and a number of other places as well, and ALSP, Axiom. He said that he didn't think that uh, law firms were structurally incapable of change. And, and I thought, oh, that's, that, that's interesting. Um, he, he had some, some interesting reasons, but, but it was a sort of, I sort of looked and think, well, Mishcon actually have managed to do a lot of the sort of the extensions on the, on the back, you know, very, very nice conservatories that are really making the place much more livable, I would have, I would have thought, with all due respect to, to, to everyone at Mishcon. 
but not profoundly change the sort of the core rationale for the way in which the the business works. Is that is that sort of fair about the way in which we we do change both in Britain and sort of more generally within law firms? Yeah, I think you're right. I think Mishcon is a good example, but an atypical example. They're a very progressive partnership for all the reasons that you've just given. But when Nick says, and I'd have to speak to him about it, and I agree, he's a phenomenal professional who'd be great to have on the podcast. When Nick says that other organisations, you know, have similar challenges, he may be right. But if you were to, I've thought a lot about what makes an organisation very good at driving digital change or transformation when I was writing my, my book. And I, I think you can boil it down to four characteristics, if you like, or best practices, which are diversity. So having a diverse workforce is very, very important for innovation and change. Agility, capital A agility and lowercase agility. So being responsive and fast and quick to move in this, these volatile uncertain times and agile software, agile, with capital A, leveraging multidisciplinary teams with lots of transparency and collaboration. So diversity, agility. The third one would be purpose. So I think successful digital organisations are able to unite a large proportion of their organisation around a clearly articulated purpose, and that helps to drive the change through. And the last one is culture. So successful digital companies create a culture in which innovation can really flourish. And if you look at each of those four characteristics, um, we haven't got time to take them all in turn. So let's just focus on one. Let's focus on diversity and look at how the law firm operating model supports or doesn't support that digital best practice. I think we'd have to agree that the law firm record on diversity is absolutely woeful. There are many, many reasons why that might be the case, but I think it's fundamentally a structural issue because for consensus-based decision-making, which on which a partnership depends, to really work in a sort of distributed partnership of 400 partners, let's say in a large firm, you have to trust your fellow partner and it's much easier to trust someone who looks like you, who went to your university, who walks and talks like you, who's the same colour as you. And it's that homogeneity of human capital that on which partnerships depend structurally that militates against diversity. It's great for predictability. It's not good for diversity. So it's in those ways that the baiting structure of a traditional law firm partnership, not all of them, but most of them, really doesn't make these sort of digital characteristics easy to achieve. But if you think about, contrast that with a corporate legal team sitting within a corporate structure, they would generally will be more diverse than a law firm partnership. And the reason for that is that they are required to adhere to the organisational rules and disclosure rules that the corporation does. And that means, as in ESG, you have to, you have to be very clear about your diversity statistics. I think that's one reason why corporate legal teams are much more diverse than traditional law firm partnerships and are driving the diversity agenda within their external counsel. So different models do drive different behaviours. And I think the law firm model is particularly limiting when it comes to some of these digital characteristics. You talk about a lot of this in your book. Um, so it's successful digital transformation in law firms, question of culture. It's out now and available at all good booksellers. Bless you. <laughs> I know, yeah, but, but published by Global Law and Business. So, so the title, it's kind of a giveaway. It does what it says on the tin. Um, so it's about successful digital transformation. You know, are there one or two lessons that we can take from, from that, which would mean that everyone should go out and buy your book? What are the secrets to uh, generating this type of transformation within a law firm? Assuming you don't want to do the entire tear down and rebuild. No. If someone was to say to me, 
how do I, what's the first step I would take in driving successful digital transformation through my law firm structure? I wouldn't start with business case and I wouldn't start with technology. I wouldn't even start with people and hiring. I would start with purpose. And that sounds very hippie and nebulous, but I, I genuinely believe that to be really successful in driving change, you have to bring a whole firm with you. You can't depend on a small team or a partner or even the leaders. It has to be atomized across the whole organization. I don't know if you've ever read any John Cotter, Cotter with a K. He's the sort of godfather of transformation change. And honestly, his book, Change, is really, really fascinating. One of the best books on sort of organization structure and change I've ever read. And he is very clear that to drive change, you have to sort of bring the diverse many with you. Law firms aren't really very focused on their purpose. Whereas in the corporate world, in the corporate structure, of course, corporations have been compelled to start to think about a wider set of stakeholders by ESG, for by ESG reasons. So they are very, very focused on their corporate purpose. They think about their shareholders, they think about their external investors, they think about the wider world. You think of someone like Patagonia, for example, as, as an organization that's really purpose-driven. But law firms, for law firms, purpose is really just perpetuity, you know, bequeathing the law firm to the next generation in a better state than it was bequeathed unto me. And that only really thinks about a very small set of stakeholders, which is fellow partners. So until you have a sense of purpose that goes beyond just making your partners richer, bluntly, thinking about your other employees, your clients as stakeholders, society as a whole, justice and the importance of justice, until you have that clearly articulated purpose it'll be very hard to drive real change through any organisation, in particular a law firm. And I know that sounds hippie, and I know that law firms really don't like to think about it, but I think it's absolutely critical. And successful corporate legal teams are all starting with their purpose. I've worked with a number of legal teams, and I can give an example, Halion PLC, which is a spin-off from GSK. Uh, the GC there is Bjarne Natalman. He's an absolutely wonderful professional, another good person to have on your podcast. He's just done his internal digital transformation in preparation for spin-off, and it all started with purpose. That's where they that's where they grounded it. And, and I think that's the key, the key to success. I should say for all of the people listening, because I can't see you, you, you don't have crystals all over you and, and you're not in uh, an age of Aquarius uh, sundress. So so you look very, very, very corporate. No, obviously these days, yeah, I, I think the idea of a purpose-driven firm is pretty standard. It's it's not a that strange an observation, but it's interesting that that gets connected through to digital transformation. You know, it's 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 not where you would ordinarily start or ordinarily, I wouldn't ordinarily think to start, but it's a, it's a great observation. One of the, you know, one of the things that I was thinking as as you were talking about this was was that uh, whenever I kind of talk about transformation within uh, law firms, talk about innovation, there's almost always one partner saying, "If you're so smart and if you're so right about this, why are we making so much money?" And and, and I, I never really have a good answer to that. It's sort of like well, my answer is usually, "Well, you know, it's it's going to catch up with you eventually." Um, you know, how how long do you want to be in in business? You know, how how long do you think that this particular extraction of super competitive rents, you know, can can, can exist. I didn't know if you had a response to, to that particular sort of question. They do seem to be making a lot of money still. It, well, they do. And they've been phenomenally successful. And I've been banging this drum for years and years saying it's all going to change, you know, burning platform, the writing's on the wall. And that hasn't come to fruition yet. And it may be that it never does in a way that brings down the entire partnership structure. Something about the model works, and there are many positives to the partnership structure when it's done well. It's actually quite a democratic structure in some ways. Um, You get great 
teamwork. You work with smart people. It's a very safe job. Um, you get very well remunerated, you know, not just as a partner, but all the way through. You're not going to get fired unless you do something really stupid. So there's lots of advantages to the law firm partnership model. My concern, though, is I've worked a lot with corporate legal teams now, much more than I've worked with, with law firms. And I can see that corporate legal teams, who are the clients, of course, are fundamentally changing how they operate. If we take another of my sort of four digital best practices, agility, so many leading corporate legal teams now are reorganizing themselves to work in an agile way, agile capital A, so true multidisciplinary teams, daily stand-ups, working as a product team with business stakeholders, moving away from those siloed verticals that used to sort of define the corporate legal team model, teams like Deutsche Telekom, ING, Bosch, and others. Now, that's a very, very different way of working from how a law firm would work. What, what I think is that if law firms don't recognise how their clients are themselves transforming and their clients' businesses are transforming, they will become more and more disenfranchised from their clients and won't be able to act as a trusted advisor anymore. And someone else will come in to fill that gap. I mean, we can talk about alternative legal service providers who don't yet, uh, I don't think, have perhaps the advisory capabilities to enable them to really compete. We could look at the big four, who I think you know, are very, very strong contenders for presenting a sort of platform of transformative change, multidisciplinary teams, technology, ability, and a deep understanding of the client's businesses. And I think if law firms don't start to get with the program, they think transformation is about taking your tie off before you go and pitch for Uber, they, they are not going to be able to be the trusted advisors to their clients anymore. And that will eventually come to bite them over time. It is important, however, to take your tie off before you um, go, go pitch for at Uber. Uh, we'll come on to the big four in, in, in a minute because you, you have some news and, and we have some, I have some interesting questions around the big four in, in various ways. But I'm interested in your observation around the alternatives and, and alternative legal service providers. You know, so one of, the, one of the observations that I've had around when, when people say, well, why is it that the law firms are making so, so much money? is um, that there isn't an alternative to to those sorts of firms and that the ALSPs sort of haven't made the inroads that we sort of expected them to make maybe, you know, 10 years ago, certainly, you know, five years ago, it was sort of clear that that they were picking up, a you know, a, a, the, the low end of the market, but not sort of advancing beyond that. And I was talking with Chris DeConti uh, the other day, he's the, the head of strategy at, at Factor, which is, uh, you know, one of the the parts of the original axiom that, that, that split off and uh, they do they do manage services and and originally that was sort of e-discovery and low-end stuff their particular pitch is around this idea of integrated law which which is where you've got the the innovation part you've got the the technology the legal part as well as the kind of the trusted advisor part and it's sort of in that middle ground that that law firms have always done this sort of work and ALSPs haven't really tried to do that and his argument in this thing that he calls integrated law is that the ALSPs need to move more into that space where they are sort of embedded with the corporate legal teams and so that they can actually start to pick up more of the mid sort of tier work, if you like, that in fact, there's actually a relatively small amount of, of low end uh, work and, and that sort of confines them. But that's interesting. Absolutely agree with, with your analysis. And there's a really good paper that Richard Susskind wrote with Neville Eisenberg formerly BCLP, about precisely that vertical integration of, of legal services and combining 
high-end advisory with the more commoditized, technology-driven, lower end of the market, but into one service. Because if you think for the, from the client's perspective, to have to get your commoditized work done by, you know, name an ALSP, to get your bet the company work done by, name your city law firm, it may be makes sense financially, but it's very complex to stitch back together. It becomes a real harlequin patchwork for them to have to manage. And really, it's sub suboptimal for the for the client. So I absolutely agree that, that that what's required is a really truly integrated offering. Yeah, and you have all of the transaction costs of trying to manage all of that, and then the onboarding and all that sort of stuff. You don't want that. We referenced, or you referenced, the big the big four, and sort of the interesting thing when I first spoke to you is that you uh, were just a consultant, but you indicated that that might be changing, and obviously, given all of your interesting observations around the direction of law, um, I was interested to, to know where you decided to go and why you decided to go there. And it turns out that you're heading somewhere soon. And as long as we don't drop this before January 9th, <laughs> we'll not be letting the cat out of the bag because everybody will know that you are now working at... Deloitte Legal uh, in their legal management consulting arm. Yeah, I'm delighted, actually. I uh, spent a lot of time over the last two years reflecting, as many of us have, and trying to really work out where genuine change is going to be driven. And I've worked with ALSPs, I've worked with law firms, I've worked with in-house teams, and I've spent a lot of time talking to Deloitte. It's the combination for me of the deep understanding of the business, which sometimes I, with the greatest respect, I don't think law firms always have. I think they think they have, but I don't think they really have. The deep sort of C-suite relationships that a big four contender like Deloitte has the transformation capability and experience. I mean, they've been doing this for a very, very long time, very successfully. The technology um, chops that they have, the legal capability. I mean, Deloitte Legal bought Kent Little, which is a, a, a law firm, relatively boutique, very highly regarded law firm that does a lot of um, intellectual property work. And they bought them, so they have some, some strong advisory capability. And it's the multidisciplinary nature of that kind of working that really, really appeals to me. And you don't get that in a law firm environment. And it's not easy to find in an ALSP environment. And when you can't, can find it in an ALSP environment, the challenge is that the sales cycles for this kind of work are so long that private equity funded ALSPs just can't invest for long enough to make it work. Whereas somewhere like a, a big four with, with a lot of you know, support behind them will have much more patience to invest in the right outcome. So I th- I'm very excited. I think they're a fantastic team. I really think it's going to be utterly transformational. So I'm, yes, it's, it's good news. <laughs> Congratulations. That's, um, that's, that's really fantastic. And um, the ice skating rink, which has been put up outside my office in the, in the courtyard of Somerset House is, is playing cheery music uh, to cheer you on. So congratulations. <laughs> in the first year that you're going to be there, do you have any particularly large plans that you'd like to be able to implement or is it too early to say? Well, my focus will be financial services, which is a really interesting market and obviously highly regulated um, so there's going to be quite a lot of learning I think I'm going to have to do and a lot of client retail. I want to spend time with clients, talking to clients, finding out what they really need and how we can help them solve their business problems because that's ultimately what it is. It's not their legal problems, it's their business problems. So the more time I can be out of the office with clients, the better. So that's my, that's my that's the beginning of my 90-day plan. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Um, I'm sure you'll be a huge success. It, it's interesting, you know, we're heading to the end of this time with you, but I'm sort of thinking about 
when I first started this podcast, I think it was about, I think we went to air the first time for about four years ago. And you could see that ALSPs were, were sort of on the, on the market. The, the big four were, were sort of, you know, dipping their toe in the water, but it wasn't really clear that that was going to, to take place. Um, and law firms were interested in change, but it sort of wasn't clear that they really wanted to do it. Looking back on it, it seems that, you know, if I was sort of doing a, a sort of a structural analysis of, of those three players, law firms have stayed basically about the same. You know, some really great innovators like Mishcon and some others. The ALSPs have expanded and then, you know, kind of like found their niche, but and they're still sort of working it out. But the big four have been the, the big story, I think. You know, they've actually really decided that this is going to be where they're going to play and, and this is a long-term uh, solution for a lot of the legal service demand. So I'm not, I'm not just trying to blow smoke. Uh, you know, lo- looking back on it, that, I wouldn't have guessed that that was the case because, you know, the big four dipped their toe in the water around legal, what was it, 10 or 15 years ago and then sort of retreated. This is a different sort of a story. Um, and, and I think they're really committed now, which would be really interesting to see. Definitely a space to watch. Definitely a space to watch. It is definitely a space to watch. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, We've been absolutely thrilled to have you. Uh, Isabel Parker, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. An absolute honor to be invited to be part of the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Future Law Podcast. Next week, I'll be talking to Michael Mornio, a veteran of the alternative legal services provider space who reflects on the overall shape of that space today and how it's evolved over his 15 years in the industry and his nearly 30 years as a lawyer. If you would like to share your thoughts on the future of law, ALSPs, or anything else, then send us an email at futurelawpodcast at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us via Twitter at the Future Law Pod. If you're enjoying our show, please review us on Apple or Spotify. Thank you to our executive producer and editor, Priya Tahirzadeh. Bye for now.